This is the Run Your Life podcast, and I'm host Andy Vasley. Given the pandemic and uncertainty over the last year, educators from around the world have felt the deep impact that COVID-19 has caused. Whether you're a school leader, curriculum coordinator, classroom, or a single subject teacher, what we thought was once normal and routine in the day-to-day business of running schools has, without question, changed. So what is collective efficacy and how can it be achieved in schools? On today's show, we're going to explore what collective efficacy is and how schools can build a culture where collaborative inquiries drive the process of professional development, as well what leaders should and should not do when trying to create a learning environment where all educators can excel and thrive. Best-selling author and consultant, Dr. Jenny Donahue, joins me today on the show to talk about what she does best, which is capacity building for school improvement by strengthening the link between theory and practice. Hope you have a listen and it makes a difference to you and the work you do, wherever that may be in the world. I was thinking about my experience as a student and I was very disengaged in school. I didn't do well in high school and my life circumstance found me living on my own at the age of 15. And, you know, I think back, I, I ended up graduating high school, not with all my credits, but making it to, to graduate and spending some time working in fast food industry, you know, from the time I, I graduated. And I just remember having a moment one night while I was scraping cheese out of a microwave oven at the local Burger King at 3 a.m. And I thought I wanted something more. I knew I needed something more. So I uh, returned to school and I was able to get into university as a mature student even though I didn't have the grades, but, you know, with uh, some loans, uh, government loans, and with, um, you know, some some financial assistance, being able to work my way through university. Uh, The first year, I remember being pretty rough. I didn't apply myself, just like I had in high school. But then something just came over me, and I had this desire to to change um, and and get better. And so... um, you know, over time, I was able to get better grades and realize that if I did try and put forth the effort that I could achieve and, um, you know, able to graduate with an honors degree. And then I decided that I wanted to go into teaching, having some really strong role models um, in university, really good teachers kind of inspired me to, to go into that field. Um, and, 
eventually uh, got a job at a, a small local school and uh, really enjoyed teaching. Um, my husband encouraged me early on in my career. There was a posting for um, a new teacher induction support at the district. And he had noticed some leadership in me at the school level. He was also a teacher. He taught special, special education in the classroom next to me. And he encouraged me to apply for that, for that job because he saw that I was doing a lot of informal teacher leadership in my role at the, at the elementary school where I was working. And uh, so I ended up working at the district office um, then working with the Ministry of Education in Ontario, supporting um, high-quality professional learning in school districts across the province, and um, that got me interested in, in writing about, uh, you know, why we do what we do in, in professional learning communities. And um, so, yeah, that's some of my experience and background. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And for the listeners right now, what I didn't mention is our co- very, very common connection here that we're from the same, I would say, hometown. I mean, it's the same area of Canada, Windsor, Ontario. You're from Amherstburg. And when I found that out after Jim Rosine had mentioned you and I, I looked up your work and I saw you were from Windsor, I was just you know shocked because I'm here in Saudi Arabia. You've moved from Windsor and you're in, now in New Orleans, did you say? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And somehow the universe just kind of brings us together and we're, we kind of have similar stories and we went to the same university, um, which is incredible. So I just wanted to mention that to set a little more context for our common connection. Uh, which I think is amazing. But um, if you, we were to really look at, in before recording, we kind of talked about some of your early strengths, but just to set the context a little more, can you just talk about a couple early strengths that you really feel you possessed that helped to really serve you well in your leadership role in education? Sure. I think for me, I have a really strong work ethic. And uh, it's always been there and continues today. Um, you know, I enjoy work, which which is fortunate. And um, I think that I bring a lot of uh, independence to that. That's a strength of mine for sure. Mm-hmm. Is that notion of being an independent starter, um, being able to, to focus on the work and uh, dig deep. Mm-hmm. I think those are some of my strengths when you think about the work that you do now, so we're going to spend the next 30 minutes because I know we have my, you can probably hear my dog barking. Now you told me in the pre-recording that your dogs might bark, but it's my dog first. Um, so we have about a half an hour right now. And I've asked you already to be back on the show at a later point to dive more deeply into your work. So let's just do a surface level dive in this, this first episode, summarize the work that you do uh, in leading change in schools and uh, that's the first question. And the second question has to do with your philosophy in regards to leadership and change and the conditions necessary to create lasting change. So it's all connected, but let's begin with uh, summarizing the work that you do le- leading change in schools. Uh, sure. So my first book was around how to facilitate a collaborative inquiry designed for professional learning. And what I noticed early on in my role at the district at the local school board in Windsor mm-hmm. was that, um, and I'm going to use a phrase from Andy Hargraves and Michael Fullen in their book, professional capital. They say that successful and sustainable improvement in schools can't be done to, or even for teachers. It can only be accomplished by and with them. Mm-hmm. 
And so that is at the heart of my work and my belief system as well. And I noticed, you know, early in my career as a teacher that professional development had largely been top down. Somebody else determined, someone at the district office, what it was that we needed to know and be able to do. And we'd have like a ballroom kind of, you know, guest speaker and outside expert come in and teach us about a topic. Mm-hmm. And rarely did it ever transfer to changes in classroom practice. You'd walk away hoping you'd get one or two strategies. Um, and so I stumbled upon the work of Helen Timberley and her spirals of inquiry. And it intrigued me as, you know, in my new role as a professional developer, how might I use spirals of inquiry to engage teachers in professional learning as a way of empowering them as a way of um, putting the professional learning in their hands, having them be the people who are producing the knowledge together based on the dilemmas that they have identified are relevant to them here and now. Jenny, can, I ask, can I ask you something about can, the metaphor spirals of inquiry? Just give us a, more of a snapshot into your interpretation of what that means. Sure. So, well, in Ontario, we largely called it collaborative inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because instead of doing it on an individual basis, we thought, let's come together and engage in this process as a team. Um, and an inquiry cycle really entails a group of teachers coming together, identifying the strengths of their students so that they can build upon strengths, but also identifying some needs, whether it be cognitive needs like students' ability to infer, draw conclusions, synthesize, or whether it be metacognitive needs, so students' ability to self-assess and know what what they know when they don't know, you know, know what to do when they don't know what to do. Um, So identify really an area of focus that's rooted in a student learning need, and then investigate um, promising approaches and their own field experience and uh, tap into student voice to determine what it is that they can do differently in their practice and then commit to doing that differently, Um, try new things, test, experimental type, and then assess the outcomes. Did the change in practice make a difference, a positive difference in student outcomes? And um, what are we learning together as a team about that? And when I think about this notion of a collaborative inquiry, and when I started to invite teams of teachers to take part in it, it was a game changer. Um, teachers, it grew and grew because word spread that this was relevant for me. It was empowering for me. You know, as the teachers participated, that's how they felt. They felt that they had a voice and that they were making change and they were realizing as I look back, collective impact. And that ties nicely with the notion of collective efficacy because collective efficacy is that shared belief that what we do makes an educational difference to students over and above the impact of their homes and communities. So as teachers engage in these cycles of inquiry, um, they were um, feeling a sense of efficacy because they were noticing that they're interpreting their success through a growth mindset, recognizing that their efforts were what was making the change in student outcomes and, and, as a result, building, building their efficacy. So I think it's a really powerful way to engage in professional learning. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and I just want to give you a bit of backstory here. So I work at the Kaus School, which is the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. And going back to Jim Rosine, he um, was hired as a consultant um, to come into the school and train the pedagogical coordinators. So that's myself 
and my wonderful colleagues. There's um, five of us and we are coaches for the teachers. So we very much engage in this professional inquiry process, which is meant to be self-authoring, um, all about autonomy, you know, totally rooted in self-determination theory and, and the conditions necessary to intrinsically motivate teachers or just people to pursue their own growth. So they do a initial self-assessment and then identify, uh, become curious about certain areas that they're interested in knowing more about based on the students in front of them. So it's not based on a hunch. So we have several different data points. So based on the students in front of them that year, because it can change year to year, what are your needs? And then begin that to construct an inquiry question that will then lead them on this journey. And then as a pedagogical coach, I'm there to support them. And that's the training I did under uh, the amazing Jim Rosine is to, to learn how to um, really tap into the internal resources of teachers. It's all about empowering teachers. So having uh, given you a little bit of that backstory, and I'm not talking about teachers at our school, but teachers in general, even though they have this self-authoring opportunity and to collaborate with peers, there are still times where schools can meet resistance with teachers. So how do you work with schools through that difficulty? Because the schools know that they're trying to create the conditions for these teachers to excel and to be empowered. But um, where do you find the greatest resistance lies, even though the doors are open to this type of professional growth? And what do you do about it? Well, I think that if, and, and I agree that that inquiry question is a big part of what drives the, the work. Um, people tend to be inquisitive. And when they ask questions that are, um, you know, related to the needs of the students that they're serving right here now, that's, that's a, a, a part of the buy-in. Um, and I think that where I see the process break down um, and where resistance can happen is when it's not adhered to in the spirit of what it's designed to do. And that those are the things you hit on. It's designed to empower teachers and designed to provide teachers with professional autonomy. And I've seen many cases where someone from the district office wants to come in and be the facilitator. When I think teachers are quite capable of facilitating the process themselves. And mm. that's one thing that I think can shut down the process. When you have someone coming in trying to take on that role and try to steer it in a direction, um, you know, that isn't as authentic as it could be if the teachers were doing it. Mm -hmm. um, I had a case once where we had a superintendent uh, purchase um, I don't know if they were some kind of a device. I think it was iBooks for all the grade nines in one of the high schools. And he came in and gave the inquiry question to the teachers. You know, he, he created the question. And, and I thought this is not going to work out the way that it's intended because the teachers aren't owning this. This is owned by some, someone from the outside. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that there's things that, and this is what I talk about actually in the second book that I wrote with a, with a colleague, Moses Velasco, we, we looked at where the promise of collaborative inquiry has broken down the trans, we call it the transformational potential of it. And we looked at some of those barriers that, that we've seen systemically 
kind of put a, a roadblock to allowing teachers to really do that authentic work. Um, you know, one of the, the ways I look at and define teacher leadership is when we truly step back and give teachers decision-making power over important issues related to school, school improvement. And I think that's a hard thing for leaders to do sometimes because for various reasons. Um, but I think that that's part is of the pushback is when we really aren't honoring teachers' professional autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen that too. And when, when the coach or the uh, senior leader jumps in with their own agenda, it shuts things down really quickly. And I guess that's the, the difficulty. And I've heard other coaches in other schools talk about this is, you know, most teachers are on track with their professional inquiries and they really f- feel the sense of empowerment and appreciation, genuine appreciation for working in an environment that supports this. But then they can run into difficulty at times when there's just not buy-in and, and they feel that they've done everything they can. And then the coach or the senior leader has to step in and be a little more assertive. And that breaks things down further. But then there's a need to also deliver a message that this is the type of teacher we're looking for. Um, in your experience, and I've heard other consultants um, say that doesn't matter what process you try to implement at a school, you're always going to meet like 8 to 10% resistance, uncoachable teachers. Do you believe in that statistic or do you always see that there's a way to make breakthroughs? Well, I, I've definitely come across some resistors. Um, I've seen effective leaders turn them around as well, though. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I remember being involved in a, a PLC in one of the high schools in, in Windsor. And uh, the, one of the teams were going down a road that were asking a question that was against policy. It was an assessment related um, inquiry. And I remember this is early in early on in my career. I remember going to the principal, like, you know, it's, it's hard enough to gain access as a central office person into, you know, the real workings of a, a PLC in a high school, but they, they had, I had earned their trust. Um, but I remember going to the principal and saying, you have to shut this down. Like this can't happen. And he said, let's just, sit back for a couple of days and let's watch the situation and listen to the conversations and see what unfolds. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the team determined within a few days that that was the wrong course to take. Okay. And I remember it was such a learning moment for me because I thought he was very smart to sit back and monitor the situation. And I think he would have intervened had he needed to eventually, but by sitting back the teachers, you know, it comes to the, the phrase comes to mind, trust the process and the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what he did. And it worked out. And, and he, he, he had buy-in from some of these naysayers. And again, if, if teachers experience this rich professional learning, um, you know, they'll get more on board. And they're the best to recruit. You know, someone from central office isn't a good recruiter because, you know, people... Well, you know, you, you haven't walked in my shoes all day long, right? But but my colleague next door, if she's seen that this, and I trust her her judgment because she's, you know, in a similar situation than I am, then then by word of mouth, I think that this this can help to, um, I guess, bring some of those resistors on board. Another quote from Fullen, his his book Six Secrets of Change. 
Um, sometimes you have to give respect before it's been earned is one of the res- quotes that resonated with me from that. And I have seen that technique turn resistors around as well, mm. where we start, you know, uh, and it was with a coach I worked with in one of the high schools again in Windsor. And there was a lot of friction between the coach and the principal. They just, you know, their personalities were caught like, you know, kind of conflicting often. And, um, the principal started to provide this coach with additional responsibilities, because I think in the end, that's really what she was seeking. And by really showing her a certain amount of respect, their, their relationship changed. So there's not one answer to every situation, um, but there's definitely, I think, opportunities that we can learn from um, some experiences. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And some really good examples there. And I've experienced those as well. And or situations like that. Um, I have a quote from your blog and that I want to read to you because I think it's a nice segue into the next part of the discussion, but ties into everything we've been talking about. So the quote is this simply inviting participation does not guarantee that teachers will feel empowered. Simply inviting participation does not increase the sense of collective efficacy. Instead, teachers will experience feelings of alienation or empowerment based on their perception of the scope of their influence. Teachers will feel less empowered if they perceive their influence is low. So I want you to speak about that quote and how do we truly reframe what it means to co-construct an environment of professional learning and growth in a school in order to squash the traditional top-down, do-as-you're-told approach that unfortunately some school leaders still live by. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I, I enjoyed you reading that quote. Thank you. I remember writing it. Um, and of course, that notion of perception it really goes a long way. If, if we perceive that we don't really have autonomy or decision-making power, then we will feel a sense of resentment, alienation. Um, so yeah, I think it's about providing teachers with authentic voice and, and coming to common understandings about what we mean by that, you know? Um, and I think that leaders typically feel, I mean, the buck does stop with the leader, right? And, and so in the end, there are some decisions that they can't turn over to teachers. Um, but by, really kind of thinking around um, how to get teachers involved authentically um, and then really tapping into teachers' expertise and uh, learning together. I think that's one of the important things for a leader is to just, I guess, uh, be vulnerable in a space of professional learning next to a teacher, you know, Mm. and be open to engaging in professional learning. They don't have to have all the answers. This notion of, um, you know, the superhero leader. (laughs) I was asked uh, recently, there was a conference and the the question was that was posed to each one of the presenters. If the leader had to have one superhero power, what would that be? And, you know, that gives the impression that we expect leaders to be superheroes and that part of the job description is that they should be able to leap a tall building in a single bound. And I think we're adding to the list of what we expect them to do, but 
by no means um, do, are they expected to do at all. And so where can they distribute some of that leadership, I guess? And I'm not sure if I answered your question yeah, exactly, but no, that's no, where my you, rambling mind went to. Yeah, I think, I think you did. And, and I think of our um, principal here, and he's such a thoughtful person, and he's had so much compassion and empathy for teachers over the last year. And he has been very clear in his messaging that he doesn't want to pile stuff on he he completely respects them and their ability to work together to um, continue to to teach because the teaching must go on even though it's the pandemic, right? So I, I really think of leaders like him and and other leaders who really live uh, this every day and the work that they do. I want to jump into your four books and just ask you a question. So I'm going to read them. So the first book, Quality Implementation, Leveraging Collective, and I don't know the order, so I'm not saying them in any particular order. Quality Implementation, Leveraging Collective Efficacy to Make What Works Actually Work. Uh, The next one, Collective Efficacy, How Educators' Beliefs Impact Student Learning. The next one, The Transformative Power of Collaborative Inquiry, Realizing Change in Schools and Classrooms. And then Collaborative Inquiry for Educators, a Facilitator's Guide to School Improvement. So as an author, although every book is a special adventure within itself, writing it, what book holds the biggest place in your heart that you've written and why? Well, that's a great question. (laughs) Um, So in order, um, Collective Efficacy was first, and it's a facilitator's guide. And that was based on my experiences in leading it and saying, Let's put the facilitation in the hand of teachers. And if they wanted to, this is what it could look like. The transformative power was stepping back after seeing collaborative inquiry in districts across the province of Ontario fall flat and not live up to its potential. What are the conditions that are going to help support this from a district perspective? The third book was Collective Efficacy, How Educators' Beliefs Influence Student Learning. And that's probably the one that's the most near and dear to my heart. And I'll come back to that in a second. That was followed up by quality implementation co-written by Stephen Katz. And again, we're looking at going a little bit deeper around, you know, the promise of collective efficacy. Um, We know through research, evidence-based practices, it's, you know, getting together through an inquiry cycle to make those practices work given our unique context and our unique environment. And then actually, um, I have a fifth book. And it came out a few months ago. Uh, I'm just holding it up. For, uh, it's called Leading Collective Efficacy, Powerful Stories of Achievement and Equity. And Stephanie Height is the lead author. I'm the second author on this book. But awesome. what we did is we came together to look at examples in the field of educators, of school leaders, of teens that were actually living collective efficacy and realizing with data, um, achievement and, and uh, addressing inequities in education. And that's what this book is full of is case studies and stories. Um, can I come back to the near and dear to my heart yeah, or do you, wanna, yeah, you want no, me to please. pause? <laughs> okay. No, no. Please. So yeah, as a writer, you put a lot of time and energy and it doesn't come easy to me. Like it is a difficult time-consuming process and but I enjoy it I, I describe it as if I'm in the flow when I sit down to to take it on and uh, when I decided to write collective efficacy how educators beliefs impact student learning I remember this might sound silly but feeling a sense of pressure because 
John Hattie had announced that collective efficacy was the new number one factor, you know, around what matters most in raising student achievement. And as I was thinking more deeply about that, I was making all kinds of connections to the, to my previous experiences in work and, and some of my own research. And, uh, I remember writing that book and giving up a lot of family time, um, giving up time with my mom, you know, over holidays, because I needed to, I felt that idea that I needed to sit down and, and get this done. Uh, I hadn't felt that pressure with the other books. Um, and I, the fact that, you know, I, if it's done really well too, that it's resonated. I, I had somebody tell me, this is probably the best compliment. And it's a lot of people have that, that book has touched a lot of people. I think based on feedback, um, I was at a conference and I had a young teacher come up to me and she said, you know, my mom and I, my mom's a teacher too. My mom's in her, her final, you know, she's going to retire very soon. And I started teaching this year. She said, we got on the plane to come here and it was a two hour ride. She said, I started to, to read your book. I pulled it out of my purse and she said, I got tired. No, no, no offense. She said it was good, but I just decided I was going to set it aside and take a nap. And she said, my mom picked it up. And by the time we landed, my mom had finished reading it. And she said, my mom, I've never seen her so excited and renewed, especially at this point in her career. You should have heard all the things, the things she talked about. She was so excited that your book has, you know, inspired her. Um, and I just, I'm, I'll never forget that because, you know, you feel that you're making a difference in the field and that the time you gave up and, you know, that it, it's, it's worth the time because it's making a difference. And I guess, so that for, for me, it's, it's those, those compliments and feedback that it's making people think differently. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and when you think of your own journey and your independent spirit, and then, you know, as you said at the beginning of this podcast, you know, um, living on your own from the age of 15 and trying to figure it out and then going to university later than the average Ontario high school student, myself included there, I went to university later. Um, it must be so rewarding uh, to know that, you know, sometimes I think of Ken Robinson's uh, Death Valley talk where he talks about Death Valley being dry for, you know, it's a desert area in California and it hadn't had rain in years and years and years and years. And then suddenly it had a downpour and flooded. And then three months later, flowers started to uh, pop mm -hmm. up and and then the whole floor was covered in these beautiful flowers and he makes it very clear that when we get the conditions right um, you know love learning all of these amazing things will blossom and flourish but we have to get the conditions right and you got the conditions right in your life to go on and do wonderful things and so to hear that it goes full circle back to your whole journey and really finding your path. So I, I think, you know, just hearing stories like that is, is very special. So thank you for sharing that. And we have a few more minutes and you're definitely going to come on for, for an episode two, right? I will. I promise. Okay. okay. So what we'll close off with is we will move into, if you now let's just say, uh, obviously not your own books, you're not allowed to say your own books here. Um, but if you had to buy two or three books for a friend or colleague to read, education-related, non-education-related, what two or three books would you purchase for them? Uh, great question. Uh, the first that comes to mind, and I highly recommend, is called Intentional Interruptions. Mm. And the subtitle is Breaking Down the Barriers to Professional Learning 
or, you know, and it's written by uh, Stephen Katz, a friend and colleague of mine, and, and Lisa and that. Um, and what they look at, he's a cognitive, they're both cognitive psychologists, and they're out at um, Ontario Institute of Studies and Education. But they look at um, what are the cognitive biases that get in the way to make professional learning work. Are you familiar with the book? No, no, I'm not. But it's, I wrote oh, you'll it now, love so it. I'm going to get it, yeah. Yeah, it's an excellent, excellent read. Um, it's funny because when we left our home in Ontario, I have, I'm a book lover and I'm, I love to read. And I think that that helps me grow professionally. And I have uh, these beautiful bookshelves that my husband built. Now I was thinking I was only going to come out here temporarily. So I, I could pack five boxes of books. So I had to pick. So I have in my view right now, it's an easy way to answer this question because the ones that meant the most to me were the ones that came here with me. So besides Stephen's book, I'm going to turn that off. That's my alarm warning me about my other meeting. Besides that, you know, like um, this is an an older book, but it's still today to me is one of the most important reads I ever did. And it was the do for is raising the bar and closing the gap. There was so much in that, that book, raising the bar and closing the gap, whatever it takes, I think was, is the title, whatever it takes. And there's so many important concepts in there, um, including the idea that, you know, this resonated with me. They say when time and support are the constants, learning will always be the variable. Mm. But if we make time and support the very the variable, then learning will be the constant. And there's there's case studies from, you know, their work in schools. So that's another one that I would definitely recommend. And then I'd have to say as the third, probably John Hattie's Mind Frames, okay. 10 Mind Frames for Teachers would be another one. Because again, I guess it boils down to beliefs yeah. and, and the mind frames are ways of thinking and our beliefs. So those would be my, my top three, I guess. Okay, great, great. I'm going to put those in the show notes. And uh, uh, before we close off, can you tell where people can find you on social media? Sure. So my Twitter handle is at Jenny underscore Donahue and it's D O N O H O O and Jenny with an I. Um, I have a website, uh, Jenny Donahue.com. And I've also uh, partnered with first educational resources, a great company out of Wisconsin um, led by some incredible uh, people. And they approached me a few years ago to create the Center for Collective Efficacy. And there's lots of resources. There's lots of material people can find. And it would be at www.teacher-efficacy.com. Okay. I'm writing that down. Okay, great. So I'll include all of that in the show notes. And uh, it's been a great chat. Great to connect with you. The common connection of Windsor, Ontario, Canada is awesome. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you again. Excellent. For sure. We'll, we'll make a, a meeting sometime in the near future. Yeah, for sure. Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Dr. Jenny Donahue. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. 